Hey, good morning, church. Hey, hey everybody. It's good to be with you this morning. I am aware that um, behind-the-scenes footage is not for everybody. I have um, the Lord of the Rings extended edition on DVD. Um, I can remember the night before it was released, going to Walmart at 11.30 to make sure I was in line so that I could be the first to buy it. And as fanatic, like as excited as I was to do that, I have not watched all, however many 20 hours it is of behind the scenes footage that there is. So I, I'm, I'm aware that behind the scenes footage isn't for everybody, but I do wanna let you in behind the scenes um, about this series in particular, but about our philosophy uh, in general. Um, so I'm a little bit of a Bible nerd. Um, I like looking at the Bible, but I really believe that the Bible, like, is God has given us everything that we need to be able to know him well and to be able to live in the way that he wants for us to go. And so that is why my focus is on trying to share with you biblical principles week over week. But I'm also aware that not everybody is as interested in the Bible as I am. So if I were to get up on a Sunday morning and say, this morning we're going to begin a series and we're going to start in 1 Samuel chapter 1 and we're going to work through it. You may or may not be super excited about that. There are some people who would be. There are other Bible nerds that are into it. And there are other people, probably your neighbors and your friends and your family, who are like, I really, I don't know who Samuel is. Why has he only got one book? Uh, why does he get a number? Like, what's, like, I don't care. It doesn't have anything to do with it. So, as I'm planning, I'm aware that people don't necessarily want to read the Bible just cover to cover the way that I like to. And so I take chunks of scripture and we walk through them together. But as, as we do so, I try to put it within a frame of something that is part of your real life, something that you'll understand, um, something that you can connect with right off the bat. So we have been going through a series called Silver Linings, which really is a really brief uh, overview of the books of 1 Samuel chapters 1 through 12. We skipped a lot of material because we were looking at it through the lens of what, does this, what do these chapters have to teach us about family, my family, my role in family, and, and what we're supposed to be doing. So for a couple of weeks now, this, is, this will be the sixth week I've been talking about Silver Linings, but I'm really talking about First Samuel because um, sometimes we need something that's a little bit easier to grasp than just the name of a book. Does that make sense? So... I'm still behind the scenes a little bit. But as I was going through this, I realized that I opened a can of worms way back in week one. Um, I made a statement, and I didn't circle back around to clarify it very much. And as I was listening to another preacher, um, actually the guy down the street, Mario Villela, the pastor of Good News Church, I listen to their sermons every week. Um, I talk with him. We're good friends. And they also were doing a series on family, coincidentally. Like, we don't sync things up, but they happen to be going through that. And he made a statement in one of his sermons that I thought uh, was really challenging to me personally, and one that made me want to circle back around in our series and answer, um, maybe dissect a couple of worms that I opened the can of and then left it open, okay? 
he made the statement that we are not on the same page with our culture about what family is. We're not on the same page with our culture about what a marriage is, what it's supposed to be, who's involved, all of those kinds of things. Everybody uh, in our culture has some kind of an idea of what that looks like, either because of their experiences growing up or because of some philosophical um, decisions that they've made. They, they have an understanding of what it is, and they are not, or we are not all on the same page about what that is. And so in, in a season, um, and maybe this isn't an unusual season of, of history, where the church is on a different page from the culture, it's helpful for us to be really clear about what it is we mean and about what it is that the Bible teaches, particularly as it regards to family. And so one of the cans of worms that I opened is that the Bible gives a lot of descriptions about what family life looks like. Myron's really into this one. There's actually a bus back there he's really into, but we're going to let him do his own thing. <clears throat> so the Bible gives a, some realistic pictures of what families looked like in their time. There, oftentimes you go through the Old Testament and you'll read about these family dynamics and you go, man, these people are, are pretty jacked up. Like there's a guy who sleeps with his daughters because they got him drunk because they thought that it was the end of the world. Like that's a little bit messed up and that has ramifications for history. And what is, why does God include all of this? Like he must not care about marriage and he must not care about what families is because he, he just describes all these different things. There is no consensus about what it is. And I open that can of worms just to say the Bible doesn't try to hide the fact that people are jacked up. The Bible gets it. The Bible's right there. And it's willing to meet people where they are at. But in their descriptions of family, I said, all I said was, that doesn't mean that there aren't any prescriptions for what a family is supposed to look like. So I told you that, but I didn't tell you what I meant by that. And so today I want to rectify uh, not rectify, it wasn't a mistake, um, but I want to give you some more clarity. I want to give you some stuff to hang your hat on because it occurs to me that not everybody's a Bible nerd. It occurs to me that not everybody has walked with Jesus and studied uh, the same way that I have, and so maybe you just don't know. Um, and so I'm going to jump out of 1 Samuel, and I'm going to take us into Matthew in the New Testament in Matthew chapter 19. If you want to use the blue Bibles that are here in the room with us, it's on page uh, 1028, yeah, it is at the bottom of the page. 1028. Um, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 19 because there is a time, and this is probably the clearest, um, there's a couple of other places, but this is probably the clearest time where Jesus says, this is what a marriage is supposed to be. So the, the, the Bible has, contains significant number of descriptions of how families are, and we all know from experience that everybody's family is a little bit different. But there was a time where Jesus said, this is what a family is supposed to be. Um, and as followers of Jesus, I'm going to make a logical leap with you here, <clears throat> but as followers of Jesus, I think we should also be super interested in what Jesus' opinion about marriage is. If he gives a prescription about what it looks like, then we should probably just pay some attention to that, right? So that's, that's what I would like to do today, if you guys are on board with me. Yeah? Okay. So I, uh, what I'm doing, actually, this is a, a different format of a sermon than I normally preach, and I'll tell you why, uh, because I stole it and actually steal it. But Mario, in their series, he goes through this passage, and he spent three weeks on it. And so if you want, like, a super 
smart guy to explain it to you over a long period of time. Like those are online. You can visit their website, Good News, uh, Good News Church Ocala.org or Good News Ocala. I don't remember what it is. Dot com. It's a dot com. I do remember that. And you can listen to those sermons. I'm going to try and give you those three weeks into one week um, and to wrap up, wrap up this series. All right? We good? Cool. And I talked to him about this. He, he knows I'm doing it. And so there's no copyright issues. But anyway, let's pray together. <laughs> um, this is an issue that touches each of us personally. All of us come from a family, and all of us have background with our family, and I'm, I am aware of that. And there's a sense in which I'm sometimes hesitant to give the standard, to give the, the truth, because I know that we fall so far from it. And honestly, this week, my heart is broken about how far we are from it, even within my own family. So I'm hesitant to do that. But hang with me. If there are things that we say that are a little bit uncomfortable with or you disagree with, that's fine. I'm trying to give you what the scripture says, what Jesus says, and then we can work through it together as a community, all right? And we need the Spirit of God with us as we do this. So let's pause now and pray together. My uh, clicker's not working here, Max, if you'd put that, the prayer up for us. <clears throat> Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So we're going to be in Matthew 19. Can you make sure the clicker thing is working? I don't have control. But if you, you put it on the picture of the trees, that's fine. Um, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 19. I'm going to begin in verse 1. And I'm going to read the whole passage. And then we're going to go back through it in two chunks and talk about what Jesus is saying here. So to set the scene in, in Matthew 19 verse 1. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. So Jesus is walking, he's teaching, people are listening. Verse 3, and Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Jesus command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of the hardness of your heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. So we'll pause there. I put uh, the disciples' comment in there just so that we're all on the same page. Like, this is. There, there's some weight here. These, these words have meaning, and they can be difficult to deal with. But Jesus starts with uh, a creation precedence. 
He goes back to the beginning. And the people who are testing him are Pharisees. These are people who studied the Bible. Like that was their job was to know what was in the Bible. And so they ask him this question, which was, it was a little bit of inside baseball. Different Pharisees answered this question in a different way. And there's, so there's a little bit of inside baseball here. But also be aware that this question is the very thing that just got John the baptizer beheaded a couple of chapters before. So John the baptizer was saying to the king, you shouldn't divorce your wife to marry your brother's wife. He said, that's wrong for you to do. And the king beheaded him. Well, the queen beheaded him. It's, it's a long story. But he lost his head over making a definitive statement about what was right and wrong in marriage. And so the Pharisees are aware of this. They've got an inside baseball question, but it could have some wider political implications. Wink, wink, nod, nod, right? If John just lost his head over this, if we can get Jesus to say something, then maybe Jesus will lose his head too. We can be done with this, wash our hands, walk away. So they ask this question, Ken, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he goes back to creation. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Hey, we read this this morning, didn't we? Do you remember? What was that, Genesis chapter? Chapter one. Chapter one. Yeah, Genesis chapter 1, page 1 of the Bible. Haven't you read the Bible? Doesn't it start with this? We're going back to creation to see the way that it was meant to be. Haven't you read, which I think is kind of a, a jab. Jesus is getting smart with the Pharisees. Have you not read that he created them from the beginning and made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So he goes back to the beginning, and there are a couple of principles that we see here that, um, that we see Jesus kind of laying out. And some of them are obvious, and some of them are implicit, but we're going to begin to spell them out. First, marriage is a male-female arrangement. From the beginning, this was the way that it was supposed to be. There was a male and a female. It was by God's design. And there was something, if, you, if we were paying attention as we were reading in chapter 1, there was something in the male-female arrangement that reflects the image of God. And I could, I don't, I'm not going to go into all the philosophy. I think that these are deep issues. But at, at the very surface, we see Jesus understands that marriage is a male-female arrangement. It's just what it is. There's something else implicit here that our culture is moving away from, and so we need to be clear about. If it's a male-female arrangement, it is a two-person arrangement. So, yes, the Bible has descriptions of multiple wives, and, and polygamy does exist, and the Bible does describe those things. But when Jesus begins to prescribe what a marriage relationship looks like, it is a male-female relationship arrangement, and it is a two-person arrangement. And it's Something that you see here that is orchestrated by God. Now this is, we get into some sovereignty issues here, maybe, free will. I don't know where you land on those questions. But this is really interesting. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Now, I was there when Jesse and I went to the clerk of courts to get a marriage license. We made that decision together. I proposed to her, and she said yes. Like, this seemed like something that she and I did. We went, and we got married, and it was something that we did. But there was something that happened when we got married that God put us together, and we are no longer two separate entities. We are one thing. And it's God glue. 
So what God has glued together, you don't go behind and try to rip it apart, right? And, and we know this because of the pain that it causes when we do rip it apart. It's never easy to dissolve a marriage. There's pain involved. So the heart of this passage, like if you're, if you're somebody who is not married or has no interest in being married or anything like that, you're like, I don't, like this is, this is marriage stuff. I don't really care. I'm, I'm, you know, 13. It doesn't matter. The heart of this passage is that the Pharisees were looking for permission to just use people the way they wanted to use people without any kind of ramifications for it. And Jesus is just outright saying, when you make commitments to people, you can't just renege. You have to be faithful to the people that you make commitments to. And that applies in marriage, but it applies with everything. It applies with your parents. It applies with your teachers. It applies with anybody that you are interacting with. We don't use people. Particularly, I'm I'm going to stop. So, Jesus goes back to a creation precedent, and and you and I know that we are not in the perfect state of Eden. We're not in the Garden of Eden, like things are not perfect. So, this, this whole thing, like, obviously it's become corrupted along the way, so who's to say that Jesus' creation precedent still carries, carries any kind of weight today? Well, one, that's what he goes back to. But two, we also see in, in Jeremiah chapter 29, there's almost a restatement of this creation thing to the people of Israel as they have been carried away from their homeland, from their garden into foreign nations. God restates this thing. He says, hey, you guys should be fruitful. You should multiply. You should have grandkids. You should get married. You should pray for the welfare of your secular city. Because as the secular city thrives, you will also do well. Like, it's, it just makes sense. You don't try to tear down the thing that you're a part of. <clears throat> and there's something else, like, beyond the God glue thing, there's, there's a passage in Ephesians 4 which makes this even weightier, like, weightier thing. It's more than just my, hus- my husband and my wife. It's more than just a relationship thing. The things that we say about marriage also apply to how we view our relationship with Christ. At the end of chapter 4 in, in, in the book of Ephesians, Paul, Paul says marriage is a picture of God and the church, of Christ and the church. And so if, if this divorce thing is freely done and, and, and there's no like tension and there's no apart, like if it's not hard, then what confidence do you have that Christ isn't going to just walk off with somebody else? He proposes marriage to the church and he promises, I will be faithful to you and I will present you clean and, pla- and bla- blameless. And so what, what we are doing in our marriages also should be reflecting what Christ is doing for the church. There's big theological uh, ramifications to it. So the Pharisees respond in verse 7. Um, <laughs> they said to him, well, why did Jesus command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Notice that they use the word command. Uh, in verse 8, Jesus said to them, because of, your hardness of your heart, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So, 
The Pharisees, again, they're playing this game on a number of different levels. They really want for Jesus to get in trouble here. And so they say, well, why did Moses command us to get a divorce? And they're taking Deuteronomy out of context. They're saying that God commanded something that he permitted to happen. And when he permitted to happen, like, he made it so that the woman, the weaker, um, uh, the weaker party in terms of her economic position was taken care of and provided for. God was protecting the weaker party when he gave, um, when he gave directions for how divorce ought to work. He didn't ever say, you should get a divorce then, blah, 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 blah. He just says, if this happens, when it happens, you need to take care of the people who are most vulnerable. And they have taken that and said, well, Moses gave us a command that we can give a certificate of divorce and that we can get rid of our wives whenever we want. He says, look, Moses let you do it. He didn't command you to. You've lost your mind. He said, because, he said that you could because of the hardness of your heart, because you were so corrupt already, because you were so self-serving. When this happens... Take care of the people who are vulnerable in it. So we see here, (laughs) Jesus understands for marriage to have been, is supposed to be permanent. From the beginning, it was not so. This was supposed to be lasting. This is supposed to be permanent. And there's another thing here that I think is both explicit and implicit. And you might think I'm doing some gymnastics here. And Maybe I am. There are other passages that support this, but I see it here in this text, and so I'm going uh, to bring it out for you. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. See, marriage is designed to be permanent, and marriage is designed to be the location for sexuality. Like, if you're in a marriage relationship and somebody is expressing their sexuality outside of that, like, that is a violation of the way that things are supposed to be. And so that goes for extramarital sex or premarital sex. Like, as long as you're married, like, that's, that's what it is. And the pain that we have in our culture around sexual identity and things like that are because we're playing with this thing that was supposed to be kept in a, in a certain, within certain boundaries. It's like, fire is fine. Fire's helpful in a fireplace. Fire's great. It keeps the house warm. Well, hypothetically, like in Florida, we don't need them. But in Indiana, a fireplace was a great thing to have because you just light the fire and it would keep the house warm. And the closer you got to the fire, like the better it was. Take that fire out of the fireplace and it burns the house down. That's bad news because then you've got nothing to protect you from the wind and the cold. So, all that to say, like as we see this, we go, that's... That might be what Jesus had in mind, but that's not how the world works. Like, if he had things on track for something, like, we are not there. And I don't say this as somebody who's, like, objective and bringing you the word of God. Like, this comes from me. Like, I am a a child from my mother's second marriage. I don't know if she wants me to say that, but, like, my mom was divorced and remarried, and I'm a child from that. Like, this isn't just something that I can speak about objectively and that, like, it doesn't impact me. Like, there are ramifications to the world that we live in. We are all dealing with the same train wreck, right? On one, on one form or another. So what do we do? If this is the ideal and we're not there, like, 
okay, well, I guess church isn't for me. I guess I can't follow Jesus. If that was what he wanted, then I guess, I'm, I guess it's over. And like, I had a good run, Jesus. I'm sorry. Even his disciples said, if that's your standard of marriage, it's better not to get married. He knew it was a hard teaching. But the hope of this passage is that God's designs aren't going to be derailed. He, he points back to creation. He points back to the way it was meant to be. But he's not unaware that things are broken. He says, this is what my plan was, and I'm working through it anyway. Like Things, things feel like they have been derailed, but they're not. I am making all things new. We talked, we talked last week about how sometimes it can be scary to know what God thinks about something because, hey, I'm not there. But the whole story, the whole book is about how he's doing in spite of our sin, how he is redeeming his creation, how he is bringing things back to the way that they were meant to be. So God's, God's designs are not going to be derailed. He's working it out. Do you know he pours his grace into our deepest family griefs? Whatever it is, you know he pours, pours his grace into our deepest family griefs. Whatever pain going through these verses has brought up in you, do you know God wants to pour his grace into our deepest family griefs? And do you know that it is his grace that will call sin what it is? He's the one who tells us when something's wrong, and that is nice. Like, it's not wrong for you to tell me I'm getting ready to crash my car. Like, I don't like to hear that, but it's kindness that you'd give me that information before it happens. Hey, I cut your brake lines. I want to know that. God's great grace calls sin what it is, and then he invites us to abandon it. He says, look, I've made a way. My designs are not going to be derailed. I've made a way. I'm fixing the tracks. I'm I'm, I'm doing the work in the world. And God points us towards what's best even through our disagreement. There's times where we just disagree with God. We say, that's not the way it's supposed to work. I don't think that that works. Don't you know my my uncle? Don't you know my mom? Like Like, things are messed up. But God points us towards what's best even through our disagreement. He wants more for us to just be near. He wants more for us than just to know the right answers. He wants more for us than just to have theological thoughts occasionally or or be able to recite doctrine. He wants for us to hear his voice and listen. Hear and listen. And God teaches us about himself through the family he places us in. And that can feel... That can feel like a church thing. God teaches us about himself through the family that he places us in. That can feel, okay, like, you don't know my family. Like, it's easy for you to say that on a Sunday morning. Like, you got whatever. It's fine. Like, you don't know. This is a picture that used to be in the hallway for a long time. Uh, it's kind of boring. It is a family tree. It, it goes through and lists the Bible verses of everybody in Jesus' family all through the Old Testament, which is kind of cool, but it's not pretty to look at. So I took it down and put some of Josh's artwork in the hallway. But I still have it because I think it's really, really interesting. This is Jesus' family tree. Jesus, son of God, redeemer and creator of all the universe. This is the people that he chose to use. Do you know who's on this list? Rahab. 
the, the prostitute in Jericho, the sinful Canaanite city that God completely and utterly destroyed? You know, she's in his family tree. You know who's in his family tree? Judah and Tamar. Do you know, do you know that story? Tamar married Judah's son and didn't have any kids. And Judah was supposed to take care of Tamar, and he refused to do it. So she dressed up like a prostitute. She pretended to be a prostitute on the side of the road, and she tricked him into having sex with her so that she could have children, so that she would be taken care of. That is Jesus' family tree. Over and over, God is working through the things that are broken in our world to bring to light what he wants to make new. His designs are not going to be derailed. And he can start with anything and take it to something that is beautiful. David, Solomon. Lest we get up on our high horse and go, well, Michael, like you... You only have had the one wife, and look, look at Jesse. Like, she's wonderful. Like, no wonder you have a great marriage. Like, she's awesome, and I agree with you. But, but like, I understand, like, there is brokenness in the world, and that God is making it new. And it, it, it affects all of us. He's in the business of redemption. He's the one who is restoring things. And so as we look at marriage is a male-female arrangement and marriage is a two-person arrangement and marriage is designed to be permanent and marriage is designed to be the location for sexuality, like in the places where we're missing it, we can go, oh, well, I'm condemned. And it's God's grace that calls sin what it is. And it's God's grace that invites us to repent, to turn away from it, to make a change. And it's his grace that empowers us to do it. He saves us. So we don't have any fear in learning what God's designs are. But as we choose to follow Jesus, it's helpful to know. And as we live in this society that will give us a thousand different answers to the question, what is a marriage? It's helpful to know what Jesus thinks. And I... <laughs> it has not been my habit to make grand theological statements like this because I would much rather you and I sit down over coffee and talk through the specifics of the things that you're dealing with because God's wisdom is applied in broken situations. But I also can't, it also, I also do you no favors by hiding the truth from you or by being vague about it. And so it seemed to me that that's what God wanted me to let you know today. What his design is, that his design's not going to be derailed. He's restoring it and redeeming it. And he wants you to follow him. Would you pray with me? Okay, what can we say? We are sinful people. We are people of unclean lips. Left to ourselves, we would not choose to draw near to you. 
God, um, in the words that we've shared uh, in this last half hour, if there are any that are just my opinion or whatever, God, just I ask that you'd remove those from our memory, that they would not be distracting from what is true. And God, for those words that are true, that come from you, I pray that those would be buried in our hearts, that they would be shaping us. But I pray that your wisdom would guide us in how to deal with our families and how to interact with our neighbors. God, to know your plan does not mean to write off those who have chosen not to follow it. Your call to love our neighbor is not overridden. So would you lead us and guide us? Would you show us your way? Would you continue to wash us in your grace? It's in your name that we pray. Amen.